precious name we pray. Amen. Be seated. All right. Good morning. Great to see all of you here. Dustin, thank you. Thank you to the worship team for leading us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. To get today, as has been mentioned, we're beginning a short sermon series. It will only consist of three messages here in the month of August, and it's a sermon series on the church. And what I mean by on the church is this. In, in three sermons, we're going to try and answer three questions about the church. Now, this won't be a comprehensive theology of the church. This won't be everything the Bible has to say about the church, but from a passage in Ephesians 2 and then from a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, what I would like to do is at least partially answer three questions. What is the church? How is it built? And why does it exist? What is the church? How is it built? And why does it exist? And there's a quotation that I've returned to over the years that will help us frame up the spirit or the attitude of our study of the church. It's a powerful quote from Charles Spurgeon. You may have heard it before. It goes like this. He says, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect and I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, he says, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. Now, Charles Spurgeon was the most popular and profound preacher of the 19th century. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for over 38 years. It is estimated that Spurgeon preached over 10 million people in his lifetime. In addition to pastoring, uh, he ran a pastor's school. He wrote commentaries and devotionals and newspaper articles. He authored hymns. He founded an orphanage, Stockwell Orphanage, which is still in operation today. Few preachers in the last 200 years have been as influential, influential as Charles Spurgeon. But at the core, Spurgeon was a churchman. He was a man who loved the church. Yet, as this quotation points out, Spurgeon would be the first to say that this thing that he loved, this thing that he absolutely gave his life to, it was not perfect. It was actually quite imperfect. And strangely, its imperfections were the very thing that made it perfect. For if the church was perfect, none of us could belong to it. It's sort of like Groucho Marx used to say, I would never join a club that would have me as one of its members. That's the church. And surely you know the church, any church, our church, Faith Bible, is an imperfect place. And that is because it's comprised of imperfect people. Look around you. Seriously, look around you this morning. These are people, look up here, <laughs> these are people that are messy and people that fall short and need grace and, and, and screw up in all kinds of ways. We are all very much imperfect, so therefore the church is imperfect. But at the same time, it is perfect. The perfect vessel, 
the ideal program chosen by God to be the hope of the nations, the primary thing that God has ordained to proclaim the gospel to a dying world is the church. There is no plan B. God has a perfect plan for his people and a perfect plan to reach more of his people, and that plan is the church. So it's imperfect, but it's perfectly imperfect. And I say all that because on the front end of this series, I want to address three hurdles that we're going to have to overcome as we talk about the church, three risks, three obstacles. The first hurdle is that for some of you, the church has been one frustrating experience after another. So when you think about the church, it's, it's very difficult for you to not think about disappointment and hurt and failure and unmet expectations and even hypocrisy. And so the imperfect side of the church is really all that you keep in front of you. That's really all you can think of when you think about the church is how messed up it is. And I totally recognize that. And maybe you've been in a congregation that was really judgmental or the leadership was very harsh or, or domineering, maybe legalistic. And so when I say the church is imperfect, man, you're like, yep. Yet when I say it's God's perfect plan for his people to love each other and to reach the world, you're like, nope, I don't see it. And I bring this hurdle up because these are legitimate hurts in our world, le legitimate sorrows, not just disappointments, but real pain maybe when it comes to you in the church. And for those things, man, I'm sorry. I wish I could change those realities. I really do. But realize with, with this short sermon series, what you need to know is that I'm not trying to set this church up as a place that won't disappoint you, because it's very likely that we will. If we haven't yet disappointed you, just, just give us some more time. We will. <laughs> maybe this month or this next quarter, maybe even this morning. I've got 30 minutes left in my sermon. That's, there's a really good chance of you leaving here disappointed today. Maybe when you walked in and you didn't see Mark was preaching, you're already disappointed. <laughs> So that's the first hurdle. The church has hurt people. That's a, that's a real thing. The second hurdle is that some of you are in a spot where life is just hard. Marriage is rough. Maybe you found out you were sick or your kids are really difficult or you can't find a job or you have this anxiety that's building up or this depression that is always creeping in and you're like, really? You're going to preach for, for three weeks on the, on the church? you got to give me something more useful than that. You know, Jay, this subject means a lot to you because you work here. But come on. We, we, we don't take this church stuff as seriously as you do. Give me something practical. Just give me something that will help me make my, my life better, comfort me or encourage me, motivate me. Don't give me the church. The church has nothing to do with, with what's going on in my life today. And if that's you, here's, here's what you need to know. The church has everything to do with what's going on in your life. Because do you know where God, where it is where God will most tangibly meet you and take care of your needs and give you a sense of place and belonging? It's here. It's with his body, with his people. Anyone who has ever fallen on a difficult time and has been plugged into the people of God, know this to be true. If, you've, if you're plugged into a solid, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church and your life just blows apart or you get sick, just watch what happens. It's people from the church that will be in your hospital room. They'll bring meals to your house. They'll watch your kids. They'll mow your lawn. They'll, they'll do your laundry. 
Because that's just what the church does, insanely practical things. And do you know what's happening in those moments when the church serves you in this way? What's happening is God is saying, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I know you think it's these nice people, but I've actually designed it this way. My presence is being mediated through my people. You won't tangibly know me and see me at work and experience my presence in your life. Those realities won't come to you unless you're knowing and loving and serving and being served by the people in my church. That's where that stuff's found. And it's not just in times of sickness that we see the church go to work. Maybe it's when your marriage is a wreck. When that happens, watch what happens. You get accountability and encouragement and truth being spoken to your heart. Or when you lose your job, you got people rallying around you and supporting you and networking for you. Or maybe you have an addiction and you open up about your addiction and you've got a band of people ready to hold you accountable. Maybe even pay for treatment if that's what you need. And so if you don't think a series like this is practical... I think you maybe, you maybe need to rethink practical. Because this truth, I really believe, God will make himself most tangibly known to you through the ministry that flows through the lives of his people. I hope you see that. So regardless of how you've come in here, regardless of, of your stuff, the church can have everything to do with each and every dilemma and problem and stressor in your life today. That's the second hurdle. You're not sure that this applies to you, but it actually does. Third hurdle, third obstacle in teaching on the church is that Faith Bible is a very established church. Meaning here at Faith Bible is probably some thinking on the church that goes way, way back to when the church began around 1980 or so. And that thinking may be very established. And it could be that in this series, we're going to bump up against that thinking. Perhaps we're going to look at some things that in scripture that could challenge your long-held beliefs on the church. So that's another potential obstacle for us. But like I said, we're going to look at this from Scripture. So turn to Ephesians 2, if you're not there already. We're going to be reading from verses 17 through 22. And as we look at these verses over the next two weeks, again, we're going to ask two fundamental questions. Today, what is the church? And then next week, how is it built? And then a third question in week three from a different passage, why does it exist? But let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So the verses I just read, they start with Jesus. Whenever you talk about the church, the best place to start is with Jesus. And what verse 17 is doing is connecting Jesus to a certain message. And that message is one of peace. Jesus is the central figure of the gospel. He brought the gospel. He preached the gospel. He embodied the gospel. And here it says the gospel is one of peace. 
Just as it says at the start of the book of Matthew, the birth announcement of Jesus in Matthew, I don't know if you remember that, but it is, it's an angelic announcement, it's a declaration from on high, and it is peace on earth. And the poignancy of this announcement hits us when we realize that Jesus was not some kind of first century hippie promoting peace by carrying a sign that said peace. It's not like that. His message is peace because we are not at peace with God. Our sin and rebellion have made us hostile toward the God who created us. Therefore, we need to be at peace with him. We need to be reconciled to him. So the message of Jesus was not the message of the flower child and the peace sign. It was his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Those accomplishments are the pathway to peace with a holy God. His mission was vertical peace, which subsequently results in horizontal peace, peace with others. And it says here, the message of peace preached by Jesus and preached as Jesus is for everyone. And the verse describes everyone as both those near and far. That's our first indicator about the nature of the church. It is those far off and those near. Now, Paul is writing this message to the Ephesians, and probably the simplest and best outline of the Ephesian letter has three points to it. I can give it to you in just six words. Ephesians, point one, in Christ. Point two, by grace. Point three, one body. So point one, in Christ. Ephesians lays out very clearly the treasures of being in Christ. And then it goes on and says, you are these things, you have uh, access to these things in Christ by grace. Salvation comes to you by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all by grace. And that results in you being one body. The glories of the church are expressed in this great letter. One body, it results in you being a church united. And that's what's being driven at here. What this near-far language means was this gospel reconciles to God and each other those who are Jews, it reconciles those who are near, and it reconciles to God and each other Gentiles, those who are far off. So there were those believing Jews in Ephesus who had been given the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the law of God. They had an understanding of and a longing for the Messiah uh, that he was coming, and so religiously speaking, they were near They were near, and Jesus brought them peace. But peace was also preached to those who came to to believe the gospel from from pagan backgrounds, to those who had very little Old Testament context to their understanding of the gospel. Religiously speaking, those people were far off. And that's what the original context is teaching. Paul is saying the church is comprised of a diverse group. It's not homogeneous. It's not just one type of religious experience or background. It's Jew and Gentile. It's male and female. It's Roman and Greek, slave and free. And he summarizes all those distinctions by saying those far off and those near. Now let me bring this home to sort of our current context, to where we live here at Faith Bible Church. Some of you have been saved by being near. And what I mean by that is mom and dad woke you up every Sunday morning, they put you in nice clothes, and you were there at church every week, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Wednesday night. If the, if the doors were open, you were there. You got older, you went to youth group, youth camp, mission trips. Maybe you went to Awana. You know, by the time you were eight years old, you looked like a two-star general with all your patches and medals and Timothy Award and perfect attendance in Sunday school, all of that. 
And somewhere in the midst of it, Jesus legitimately captured your heart, and you just fell deeply in love with God. You, you loved Christ for what he did on the cross. In the midst of a thousand activities and programs, Jesus rescued you. He spoke peace in and through that nearness. But then others of you are what I might call near-ish. I know that's not a category in this text, but I'm going to create one here. Maybe you had a similar experience to what I just described, but, but the pennies didn't all drop. You know, you went through the programs at church, and you did the deal, and you jumped through the hoops, but that activity never really had much life to it because you tried to do it without a real relationship to God. And so there came a point in time, your junior year, maybe senior year in high school, most likely in college, you just got away from the church. You couldn't be good enough, you couldn't be pulled together enough, so you say, I'm mean, forget it. And then somewhere along the way, Jesus loved you enough to remind you of the truth, the truth that you had learned so many years before, and you came to the end of yourself, and like the prodigal in Luke 15, you came running back. And this time, you ran back to the church, not to measure up to some standard that you thought it had established, but you just knew that you needed Jesus, and that's where you found him, because he was your only hope. So Jesus speaks to those who are near and near-ish, and then he also speaks to those who are far off. Because some of you in this room, you don't relate to any of what I just described. Not only did your, your parents fail to wake you up on Sunday mornings, maybe there really weren't any parents around at all. Or the two times a year that you did go to church, you saw all of the kids with the patches and the medals and the gold stars, and you thought, man, I could never do this. I could never measure up to that. And you just felt so uncomfortable with the, with the whole arrangement. You said, no thanks. And upon making your way in this world, worshiping yourself or worshiping your work or whatever else, somewhere along the way, you encountered someone that loved you in a way that you'd never been loved. Someone who talked to you about Jesus in a way that maybe you'd never heard. And since your life was falling apart, you got real interested because you really did need hope. And in the middle of all that, Jesus, he shows up and he speaks peace to you through the gospel, rescues you. Now you're his. Now you're here. So what God does in this text is this. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he takes those who are far and those who are near and he makes them a people. And here's how he describes those people. He says they're fellow citizens. Notice that Paul refers to the Gentiles in verse 17 as you, but he does not speak of the Jews as we. And this is significant because Paul, as you know, was a Jew. Therefore, Paul is regarding the present situation in the church as without divisions. There are not ethnic divisions in the church. There are not cultural divisions in the church. There are not socioeconomic divisions in the church. Paul's tearing that down. And that's not to say, in Paul's mind, God is done with Israel. He's not. But as this church is being established, even though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the church is not to be a purely Jewish movement. The gospel is to go forth to all peoples. That's why, that's why we're sitting here today. The church was for both Jews and for Gentiles. Which leads Paul to use this language, saying we are all fellow citizens. Meaning there's no hierarchy or division in the different groups. There's no favored class. All those in the church are fellow citizens. And this language would hit home because you remember that in the first century, there was only one kind of citizenship that really mattered. Roman citizenship. It was Rome that ruled the world. And to belong to any other group marked you as an alien or a stranger 
to the Roman Empire. You had no privileges, few individual rights. If Rome wanted to tax you and take all your money, they could do that. If Rome wanted to throw you in prison, that was something that they would do. Remember Paul in Philippi? Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to the Roman colony, Philippi. He preaches the gospel there. It causes a stir. And so Paul gets beaten and thrown into jail. And you remember what he did after all of that? He goes and he informs the magistrates that he is a Roman citizen, which meant he had some fundamental rights. And by beating him and by throwing him in jail, they had violated his rights as a Roman. And he goes on to use that mistreatment as leverage to protect the church that he's just planted in Philippi. He, he would call the authorities into account because citizenship in the first century, Roman citizen, citizenship, was a huge deal. And so Paul's saying here, listen, most of you, you don't belong to anybody. You are citizens of nowhere. Rome doesn't acknowledge you. They don't even care about you. But here in this place, you are fellow citizens. You all have the same rights and privileges and honors and steam. The, the, the ground in the church is level because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And then not only that, he goes on to call us not only a part of this new people, these, these fellow citizens, but we are also members of the household of God. And I love this because what he's saying is that in the church, you're not visiting. In the church, you're home. You, you are members of the household of God. You see how Paul is, is narrowing the scope in this text? He starts with a wide, wide lens, those far off and those near. So the church comes together from everywhere. It doesn't matter your background. And then these strangers and aliens, then they find themselves as fellow citizens. They're gathered with the same rights and the same standing. And not only that, they are in the same family. They are members of the same household. There's a big, big difference between being a house guest and being at home, isn't there? Ben Franklin said, house guests are, house guests are like fish. After three days, they start to stink. Some of you have hosted family this summer. This is very real to you. But it's also the same with being that house guest. You never feel settled. You never feel comfortable. You don't know what to do with your dirty dishes or that dirty towel or, or where to put your feet or whether or not to take your shoes off. or whatever. You feel like you're intruding all the time, like you don't belong. Paul says, as someone who's trusted in Christ, the church is your home. It's like being a part of a lively, compassionate, fun, loving, vibrant, caring family. You don't have to wonder if people are tired of you and want you to leave. You are not a guest. You are a member of the household. So what is the church? That's the question of the hour. What is the church? The answer from this text is the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. The church is a, a people. The church is not a building or a certain location. We don't have a Mecca, some geographic center that marks us as a people. The church is people-placed, not place-placed. So where we're sitting right now is simply brick and mortar. The air we breathe in here is no different than the air that we breathe out there. This room is not a holy place, but the people who occupy it are holy. You are what makes this a church, not a room or a pew or a meeting time. So when we say we go to church, what we mean is we go to where the church is gathering because the building is not the church. The building is just a building. Maybe you road tripped this summer. 
If you road trip through some of the smaller towns in Oklahoma, you probably came across an old Church of Christ building. A lot of times they're cinder block, very simply made. And the signs that used to accompany those old Church of Christ buildings would say, the Church of Christ meets here. You seen those signs before? And I could take issue with a lot of the theological positions of the Church of Christ, but something deeply true is being communicated with those signs. It's that the building is not the church. The location is not the church. The church is the people who show up to worship God and to do life together. So what we need to see is that in history, God has never been about building a place. He's been about building a people. Now, can buildings help us do ministry better? Sure they can. That's why greater things is important to us. We, we want to maximize our ministry impact. So we're, we're really excited about the new building, and we talk about how nice the new building's going to be. But please know that, that square footage and that seating capacity, they do not make the church what it is. It's people called out and joined together for God's glory that makes the church what it is. God calls his people to himself and then to each other, not into a facility or a set of programs. So the church is a people, not a pastor. The church is a people, not a preferred set of programming. And if you've been around church or lived in this part of the country for any amount of time, you're familiar with what we might call the church shopper or, or the church consumer. And the church consumer comes to a church, maybe having just left a church that they attended for a little while, and they come to the new church and they say, man, I just wasn't being fed at the old place. Or they say, that the worship at my previous church wasn't really doing it for me anymore. Or that place had nothing for my kids or nothing for people like me. This is the attitude of the church consumer. They never lock in with ministry. They never serve others. They give almost nothing and move on when a, when a cooler church model shows up nearby. C.S. Lewis has a word for these types of folks. If you've ever read his book, The Screwtape Letters, you know that what it tries to be the way he laid the book out is a set of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to a demon in training named Wormwood. And he's training this young demon up to uh, be effective with the subjects that he's given so he can lead them away from God rather than to God. And in one of the letters from Screwtape to Wormwood, he says to him, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him. And he goes on and says, make this man a taster. Make him a connoisseur of churches. The intention of the enemy, who is God the Father, is to make him a pupil. No, don't let him go there. Make him be a taster. Make him a critic. I heard a pastor from New York City, a guy named John Tyson, he gave a word to these church connoisseurs. He confronts these consumer mindsets fairly directly. He says, oh, you don't like the music? Well, well that's okay, because the music's not for you. It's for someone else. And, and we don't consider the congregation to be an audience. If you're here, you're actually a part of the choir. Our, our gatherings are called a service for a reason, because it's an offering to God. So the point is not whether or not you like the music, it's whether or not God likes what's going on in your heart as you sing it to him. Tyson goes on, oh, oh, you're not being fed? Well, that's okay, because the point is for you to get to a place where you can self-feed, and you'll, then you'll be able to feed others to pour out your life discipling less mature believers. 
And then he says, oh, these really aren't your type of people? That's okay, because we trust that these are the people that God has for you. And guys, this is more of a temptation in our day than it has ever been. And I, I say that because we are such rabid consumers. We have such a glut of resources that almost every experience that we have outside our homes is a consumer experience. And even inside our homes with Amazon Prime and all this other stuff, right? We're always consuming. Every store we go to, every dining experience we have, every bit of entertainment we ingest, it exists for us to evaluate and to determine if the transaction that, that took place, if it was worth our time and worth our money. This is how our, our brains are, are wired in this culture that we inhabit. And so goes the church. You're the customer, and we figure out what you want so we can just continue the transaction. You know, you want a certain kind of music? Okay, we'll try and provide that. A certain kind of ministry for children? Okay, we'll pro pro provide that. A certain variety of programming for singles or seniors? Okay, we'll, we'll do our best with that. Service times? Okay, here are eight service times so that you can surely fit one of them into your busy weekend plans. And lost within all of that consumer pandering is, that the, is the fact that the church is a people that God in his grace calls you into. And these people may not be the people you would pick, but God has given you to each other to serve and to love and to minister to, which those are intentional practices that will grow you and sanctify you faster than Bible knowledge by itself ever could. And so by way of conclusion, look closely here at verse 18. Verse 18, for, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For through him, through Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit, in the Holy Spirit, to the Father, to God the Father. The church is a Trinitarian reality. What's the upshot of that? It's that the triune God places you amongst this particular people. Christ has provided access to the Father through the word of God preached and the work of the Holy Spirit applied. The Spirit gives us new life. He regenerates us, which is what the Bible calls the new birth. And by virtue of that birth, we are now members of the same family, the family of God. The church is a Trinitarian reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reconciling individuals to God, bringing them together as people with the same Father, a people with the same access, the same peace in their hearts. Peace with God. If you don't have peace with God today, if you know that you've come in here in just inner turmoil, if you know that your life is upside down and you know that you've run the wrong way, you've run far from God, as far as those who are far off, maybe you're, you, you, you categorize yourself as the farthest off. Know that Jesus Christ preaches peace to you today. That you can be at peace with God as you lay your life down, as you give yourself away to him. You seek his mercy and his grace. The forgiveness that he provides through, to you through his work on the cross. Look to Christ today if you're without peace. Find the peace with God that's held out for you in a passage like this one. And also be reminded of this. The church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. It, it is the fold for Christ's sheep. It's the home for God's family. As Spurgeon said, this is the dearest place on earth to us. That's my prayer for us as we move forward. 
that this would be the dearest place on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now, and we are grateful for your word, that you have not kept yourself hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've given us texts like this one to, to show us what it means to be your people. And God, I pray for grace as we seek to be faithful in these things. Lord, I thank you for the peace that you've given us in our hearts, the peace that comes with being reconciled to you through the work of Christ. If there's anyone here today that does not know that peace, that they've never submitted to you and given their life to you, transferred their trust from in themselves to you, I pray that that would happen today and that they would be folded deeply and meaningfully into this church family. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Bless us now as we go to your table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On the first Sunday of every month, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the only way this meal is something to celebrate is if it really means something to you, which is a way of saying you need to be a Christian to take the Lord's Supper with us. You don't need to be a member of Faith Bible Church, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus. And because it's your union with Christ that serves that, that mysterious reality is the thing that, that makes these next few moments meaningful. So I want to invite those who are leading and handing out the elements to go ahead and come forward. As they pass out each element, simply take them from the tray, and then I will instruct you on when uh, to take each element here in just a moment. But just for a second, consider, consider with me what we're doing here in this corporate gathering today. They're safe to say... There is nothing else like this in your life. You know, surely you go to different rooms and you sit through different things, business proposals or movies or concerts or classes or whatever, but to come into a room with a pretty sizable group of people, many of whom you may not even really know, and to sing together, even if you don't like singing, and to pray together, even if you don't pray very much, to sit and to then listen to a lecture for 30 or 40 minutes, these are really unique activities. You, you don't do this anywhere else. And then consider our celebration of this supper. We, we call it a supper, but it is hardly that. It's not even really a snack. This is a thimble of grape juice and a pinch of bread. But as we consider how Jesus gave this supper to us at the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, and we consider why he gave it to us to remember him, it becomes a whole lot more than just the elements themselves. In, in Scripture, we are told repeatedly, both in the Old Testament and in the New that God has given us bread to sustain us and wine to gladden us. And so as we remember the work of Christ with these two simple ingredients, we should connect them with those biblical ideas. That Jesus Christ, the bread of life, he is our sustainer. He sustains all physical life by his sheer power and might. We live because he is the author of life, and he sustains our lives spiritually by his amazing and marvelous grace. Every spiritual breath we take is his mercy and his kindness toward us. So to put it simply, we live because he lives. As bread sustains life, Christ more substantially sustains our life and the life of the church. Christ is also our joy. Deeper than happiness, richer than fortunate circumstances, Christ, he gladdens our hearts. Even in the midst of pain, he gladdens our hearts. We have joy because we have him. Jesus is our joy. Just as wine gladdens the heart, Christ more substantially brings joy to your life and joy to the life 
of this church. So these, these very natural elements, these sort of base ingredients, bread and wine, by themselves sustain and gladden. But what these elements before us represent, the body and the blood of Jesus, that sustains and gladdens us in an exponentially greater way. So let's now just go before the Lord silently. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I want you just to think upon the life and the joy that's found in Christ before we take this supper together. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks for the bread. Father, thank you for the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the incarnation, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God in him, that, that Christ came as our substitute that his body was broken for us, and that by taking this bread, we acknowledge just the realities that exist within his salvation project. So, Lord, we thank you for this bread. After he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, as we hold this cup in our hands, we want to think deeply about the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our sacrifice. He died in our place. The blood that he shed was to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse our hearts and lives whiter than snow. We are reconciled to you because of the shed blood of your son. The sacrifice that he made was once for all sufficient for us in the church. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the proclamation of the gospel that has just taken place around this table, that everything about what we've just done together points to your son, points to the salvation uh, that we have in him. I pray that as we remembered that this morning, we would go on remembering as we leave here today. Thank you for this time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction, please. As was mentioned before, if you're a guest today, just trying out Faith Bible, I want to invite you to the Welcome Center, which is outside these doors and uh, to your left at the end of the hallway. We'd love to get some information in your hands about our church or minister or pray with you in, in, in ways that uh, you, ha you may have need. Uh, you're our honored guests, and we're really delighted that you've come and and shared this morning with us. The benediction is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul says, May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.